0: Welcome into episode five of the House of L podcast. This is going to be a lot of fun today because it's a, I love storytelling and I love crazy sports stories and I love crazy sports stories about Chicago sports. I want to give you a little bit of background before I, I drop some knowledge on you and then share the interview. The interview itself is with Dave Rebson and I'll explain momentarily. So last week I was at the car dealership. I was just, you know, getting my oil changed. And I ran into a friend of mine who I see over at the Ratner Center at the University of Chicago all the time. He works in the physics department over there. And we were talking. He said, hey, I, I heard about the interview that you did with Dave Revzin about University of Chicago football. And I said, yeah, you know, it was a lot of fun. You know, the, it was great to have him on the score talking about that subject. And subsequently, I had talked with a lot of people around UFC about that particular episode of my radio show. And there were people that were like, man, I didn't know all of that about University of Chicago football. It's really fascinating to, to learn all of those things about UFC football. And as I'm talking to my friend, he said, you know, there's another cool UFC sports kind of weird connection that you might not know of. And I said, okay, great. I mean, we talked about the Heisman Trophy, and we talked about University of Chicago football, and Emil Solonzo's stag, and all this stuff. He goes, have you noticed that there is also some basketball memorabilia in the rotunda at the University of Chicago? And I said, yeah, it's kind of cool. Now, the reason that this came up with my friend is that my friend – was a physics fellow for the guy that learned under Fermi. Okay. So he has a d- direct line back to Fermi, as in Fermi Lab. And he said that his mentor told him about Edwin Hubble. And you're going, wait, Edwin Hubble? Yes, that guy, the guy who kind of discovered the universe and stuff. The the guy who the telescope is named after, the Hubble telescope? Well, it turns out that Edwin Hubble was quite the basketball player when he was at the University of Chicago. Hubble was 6'2", he was a forward, and he helped the University of Chicago win two Big Ten championships back in 1908 and 1909. His record in those two seasons was 34 and five. So here you have one of the most important men in science coming through the university of Chicago and also being an incredible basketball player. And so my friend said to me, there's some stories that you should read about this. And there's some pictures inside the trophy case that you probably looked past before. And I said, okay. So he sent me this story, which you might enjoy. This from the University of Chicago News back in 2009. Most people know University of Chicago alumnus Edwin Hubble as a famed astronomer, the namesake of the orbiting Hubble Space Telescope. But he also starred as a forward on the University of Chicago Maroons Big Ten Championship basketball teams in 1907 and 1908. with those season ending in the 9 That's my parenthetical. And then there's another story about another Chicago guy, John Grunsfeld, who is an astronaut. And what Grunsfeld, he's also a UFC alum. What Grunsfeld did was when he went into space, he took one of the basketballs that Hubble had played with into space with him. How crazy is that? It it blew my mind. One, that Edwin Hubble was apparently a stud basketball player before helping to discover galaxies in the universe. And then that another UFC guy respected it so much that he got the university and NASA to sign off on him bringing one of those basketballs into space. It is unbelievable. It's crazy. So I wanted to share that as a backdrop. And for people who didn't hear the conversation that I had with Dave Rebsen, this happened a few months ago on the score. And thanks to Mitch Rosen, who I, I said, look, there are a couple of interviews I'd like to put on the podcast. Tab of the Soren one, and someday I'll share that with you. And this one. Because this particular subject matter has been of a lot of interest of people that I've talked to that maybe didn't want to, you know, sift through all the links to try and find it on the SCORE website. We talked back in April about the history of the University of Chicago's football program, and I think that it is one of the best untold stories in Chicago sports. So I wanted to give you the entire interview that I had with Dave in full because I didn't play the full interview on the air. I played because we have to fit it inside a clock. And Dave came in and he recorded the, the interview and we said, okay, well, this is the 24 minutes or so of the interview that we can use and fit inside our hour of programming. So I wanted to share the entire interview with you After telling you about the crazy stuff with Fermi and and Hubble, I just thought it was fun. I thought as a bonus this week for the podcast, you might get something out of it. So, if you dig on Chicago history, if you dig on football history, if you dig on Big Ten history, you are going to love this conversation. Courtesy of the score, this is me and Dave Rebson talking about the history of the University of Chicago football program. Enjoy. I have been dying to talk about University of Chicago football for a long time. I know what you're thinking, why do you want to talk D3 football? That's not, that's not what I want to do. I want to talk about the history of University of Chicago football because I think it's one of the most interesting stories that most people don't know about. So I reached out to the Big Ten Network. Now, I had read Staggs University um, by Robin Lester, and I was like, is there anything that's a little bit more modern that's been written on the book or written on the subject? And it turns out that Dave Rebson from Big Ten Network had a, a big chunk of his book, Opening Kickoff, The Tumultuous Birth of a Football Nation, spent on the University of Chicago. So I invited Dave in to talk about this, and he was nice enough to come in. Dave, thank you so much for coming
1: in here. I am thrilled to be here. It is really cool that you have this same bug that I do. I think it is an unbelievable story. It is a story filled with a lot of misconceptions. People who live in Chicago think they know the story, but they don't. And so I'm thrilled to talk about it with you. Before we get into UFC specifically,
0: what made you write the book? And now we're, you know, three, four years removed from you writing this book. Why'd you do it?
1: Well, so I stumbled upon the story of Pat O'Day, who played at Wisconsin in the 1890s. I knew that he was a great player. Uh, I talk about a little bit in the prologue to my book. I'd kind of come across his name as a kid and then forgot about him for, you know, essentially 30 years. I stumble upon this story of his life which went off the rails. He had this bizarre personal story. And I thought maybe we'd do a feature on it for BTN. And then the more I started researching about him, I thought maybe I'll write a book about this guy. And then the more I started going, I realized that he was really indicative of a larger story, which was the birth story of college football. And so that's what my book is. And it basically makes the point through using him. He's kind of a mechanism throughout the story because kind of all of the themes that I wanted to play on were factors in his life. But essentially the point that I make is that everything that we know today about college football, good and bad. So, you know, the kind of the pomp and the circumstance, the fact that it's a PR mechanism for the university, how much it rallies people around their school, all of those good things. And just the fun and the thrill of the game and all the negatives, the battles about amateurism, the injury crisis, the conflict between academics and athletics, that all of that stuff began in the very early stages of the game. And, and, again, I think University of Chicago is a great example. You could do the same thing with UFC. I just used O'Day as my mechanism, the guy who helped me make it less of kind of an academic history and more of a story that, that reads a little uh, somewhat more interesting than kind of a pure academic book.
0: If you look at some of the quotes from and about Stag in the late 1890s and early 1900s, you could take those quotes, and it could be Nick Saban. Absolutely, you know, it, very easily you could be talking about what what type of tour de force was Amos Alonzo Stagg.
1: So Amos Alonzo Stagg, as you know, was uh, a great athlete in his day at Yale. And what people don't understand is that Yale was the Alabama of its time. Um, and Walter Camp, I would say, was probably in some ways the Nick Saban. Uh, but he was the most powerful guy in the game. He, to a certain extent, invented football, helped it kind of transition in terms of the rules. He was the head of the rules committee and helped the transition from rugby to football and, and kind of the, the changes in the game that made it purely American.
0: You brought up the concept of the scrummage.
1: Yes, right. So from the, scr- the scrummage, which was um, more of a rugby concept of that the play would end and possession would change at the end of each play. Right. So what uh, Camp believed was you should be able to hold on to the ball and, and you should have in, and you go to what we now know as the line of scrimmage. Um, and so the notion was that he came up with was, well, let's have the team that is down still have the ball. Well, then how long do they hold on to the ball for? I mean, you, I could go into like the minutia of this for hours, but kind of the gradations of he came up with the idea of downs because it used to be that you could hold the ball as long as you could hold the ball. You could have as many plays as you wanted, and teams wouldn't even try to move the ball forward. So he came up with the idea of, well, you have to advance it. Initially, five yards. They came up with 10 yards. So all this stuff, the scoring system was Walter Camp. And so his uh, one of his star players was Amos Alonzo Stagg. And Stagg was also a great baseball pitcher, as well, and was a well known athlete at the time. And so the University of Chicago decided that they were going, when they started this university with Rockefeller money, to compete on a plane with Princeton and Harvard and Yale instantly. That was the idea that Rockefeller had. I want this school to be known. One of the biggest things that William Rainey Harper, who was, head, who was hired to be the president, said, okay, how do we do that? We do that with football. And so the University of Chicago, as you know, Lawrence, was built on football more than any institution in the history of the United States. They had a football coach, so they went out and hired Stagg, who was well-known. First. First, before the university opened its doors. I mean, the example I use in the book is there were not doorknobs on the doors of the university. All the faculty had these wooden uh, contraptions that they would put where the doorknobs were going to go because they hadn't had time to put the doorknobs in, and that was how they turned the latch. So there's no no doorknobs on the door, but they have a football coach, the first ever full-time football coach. Like all these other guys on the East Coast were part-time. They hired him, they made him a member of the faculty, and they paid him twice what the professors were making. And he was hired before the university opened its doors they had their first informal game within a week of opening the doors of the university. And within three weeks, they were playing Northwestern in 1892. So they built the university on the foundation of football.
0: I'm sitting here talking to Dave Revson, who, of course, works for the Big Ten Network. And I'm, I'm certain that there are people who don't know. That the University of Chicago was a charter member of the Big Ten Conference.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and is still uh, a member of the academic consortium that makes up the Big Ten. Now that I didn't know. Yeah, so they still are. So they share all their academic resources with the other members of the league, which a lot of people don't know and, and does. Uh, the the Big Ten is also an academic uh, consortium, you know, kind of a group of schools. So, um, yeah, but U of C not only was a charter member of the Big Ten – But they were far and away the powerhouse of the Big Ten. And that was mainly because of being in Chicago, that the University of Chicago had the ability to make a lot more money playing home games than the other schools in the league because of where it was located, because it was in this population center. And so they really dictated the terms. I mean, as to what kind of guy Stagg was, he was a ruthless businessman and he realized very quickly that he was in an advantageous position. So there was a period where the University of Chicago, out of 47 games, played 44 at home. And the reason (laughs) was because they didn't want to, they could make more money than everyone else. And then they would dictate the terms of these home games. So everyone else in the league was splitting gate receipts evenly, and they would play home and home. And Stag was like, we're not going to do that. Why would we give you half of our gate receipts and then go to your place and make one third of the amount of money? You need to guarantee us the same amount of money when we go to Madison that we're guaranteeing you in Chicago. Otherwise, we're not doing it that way. We're not splitting it equitably. They would also ask the other schools before they came to play at Chicago to help them add, pay for the cost of adding more stands. So like Michigan would have to write a check for $1,500, which was not an insignificant amount of money to Chicago to add on more stands. And Chicago said, well, you know, you're going to get a little bit more out of the gate receipts that way. But Chicago had those stands then in perpetuity. So every time they played a big home game, they'd expand the stadium. And, and, you know, those were kind of that. That was how Amos Alonzo Stagg operated. He was ruthless. Everyone in the Big Ten, no one could stand him because of how heavy-handed he was in, in his business practices. It's a fascinating story, but not only were they a charter member of the Big Ten, they were far and away the most powerful actor in the Big Ten. So how does Stagg's
0: ruthlessness apply to the type of football that was played at the University of Chicago at the turn of the, the 20th century?
1: Well, so the game was very different then. This is before the forward pass. The forward pass was kind of introduced in 1905 in a really restricted form Uh, In a reaction to a huge injury crisis, Teddy Roosevelt had a meeting at the White House with the leaders of the game in the East and basically said, we need to save this game from itself because players were literally dying on the field. So in the period we're talking about, in the very nascent years of the Big Ten, and the Big Ten started in 1896, so like 1896 to 1905, the game was played, uh, you know, almost like in a phone booth. The kickers were the most important players in the sport. My guy, Pat O'Day, at Wisconsin was known primarily as a kicker, A, because it was a field position battle, and so if you had a punter who could punt the ball further than everyone else, you kind of, each time there was an exchange of punts, you were able to gain more ground. If your guy can kick it 60 yards and the a, other guy can't kick it at 30. A true field position game. Total field position game. And then the kicks were worth more than touchdowns in that time. So if you kicked a field goal, it was the point value was more than a touchdown. It fluctuated through the years, so... You know, initially it was six versus four, and then it became five versus four. It kind of—they would change the scoring system. But so that's why the kickers were a big deal. So this was a game of mass and power. They ran these um, wedge formations where basically the players were in a V, and that you didn't have a certain number of players who had to be on the line of scrimmage, so you might have one or two guys. And they would run these wedges, and they'd have the ball carrier. If you imagine a V moving down the field— and a ball carrier in the middle of the V. that's And and then they would kind of use the wedge to go over, and all the guys would plow over one or two guys on the opposing team. And then once they had cleared that area, that's where the ball carrier would run through. So it was a very different-looking sport. It was a sport that was based primarily on brawn. Um, and, and Yale had the best players in the East. And so the system that had been devised and the camp really protected avidly as the head of the rules committee was that system of these mass plays as they were called. And Chicago took a camp system essentially to the Midwest. And so they were, you know, Michigan was really good with Yost. I mean, Chicago didn't win the big 10 every year, but they were among the top two or three schools every year.
0: When we look at the way that and it's so funny, you brought up the, I just thought about it. I spent a lot of time covering the bears and covering the NFL and I remember when you could do a wedge on kickoff. That's where we would see that particular formation happen. Right. And then it bega- became you can't have more than two players it being in the wedge for exactly the same reason that you're talking about, that, that they would target guys and then those guys would get destroyed. But I want to get back to University of Chicago, but I want to go back to something that you said about Teddy Roosevelt. I'm not sure that it, even now in 2018 – we have a real good understanding of how violent the game was back then and that all of the, the conversations that we have about the danger of football and amateurism in 2018 were being had back in 1905.
1: Yeah. So in 1905, 19 people died playing football uh, in the United States and a number of them, um, people would die, you know, essentially on the field. I mean, you'd have a cracked skull and maybe they die an hour later um, you had some who would be hospitalized for a while, you know, spinal injuries, that type of thing, and then eventually would perish. And so Teddy Roosevelt intervened. And, and in 1905, he, as I said, he called all the leaders, the eastern leaders of the game. And, and essentially, the, you know, the game was dictated by Harvard, Yale, Princeton, to a lesser extent, Penn. They ran it. And he called them to the White House and basically said, let's figure this thing out. Now, I will say this. I think he gets too much credit. and I talk about this in the book a little bit. Teddy Roosevelt put them on, he did not save football. He put the leaders of the game on a path to save it. He told them, look, this isn't going to work. And he, while he was concerned about the deaths, he was also concerned about some of kind of the underhanded tactics in the game. Teddy Roosevelt was a man who believed in honor. And so he believed the game was dishonorable, that there there was stuff that would go on at the line, guys would be slugging each other and, uh, out of sight of the referee. And so that bothered him immensely, the dishonor of the game. He believed in this kind of extreme manliness, right? Like he was a sickly youth, as you may know, and then kind of built up his body through his lifetime and you know took these crazy trips down the Amazon. And I mean, he was a total nut job in a great way. And so Teddy Roosevelt believed in that, that the violence was okay. And there's a there's a speech uh, that Harper gives that I cited in my book and I, I think I saw it in Staggs University too, where he basically they basically say, look, if a few people die, that's okay, right? Because we're, <laughs> if if I mean, you know, if you sacrifice a few people in order to have this this more manly culture, sacrifice a few, you know, a few guys perish along the way so that we can be stronger, that men can be stronger. That's all right. And there were a, there was a group of people who really believed that, and Roosevelt was among that group. So it wasn't even the injuries necessarily that bothered him. It was kind of that the game had a really negative reputation. The press was starting to really uh, kind of um, latch on to some of the negative stories around the game. This was the height of yellow journalism. So you're trying to sell papers in a sensational sort of way, and the deaths on the field were a big way to do that. So I speak a lot in my book about the influence of journalism on trying to, first of all, on promoting the game and making the game a big deal because most people couldn't go to a game. So the way they found out about it was through the newspapers. So they promoted the game, but then it, I, in, you know, it was like talking out of both sides of their mouth. On one hand, they're promoting it. On the other hand, they're saying how violent it is because they're trying to sell papers. And, that bother, and it was violent. And that bothered Roosevelt a lot. So he calls the leaders to the White House and basically says, figure this out. And Camp was very resistant to it because he didn't want to change his style of play. And this is where he equates to Saban. Remember a few years ago when Saban was railing against the spread offenses? Absolutely. Okay. The reason Saban was railing against the spread offenses was because he couldn't stop them. That was the one Achilles heel of those Alabama defenses a few years ago. And so it was the same way with Camp. He believed that if you opened up the game, the the solution was the forward pass. And that was eventually brought into the game kind of gradually between 1905 and about 1912 because that it it the the centralization of the force was dispersed does that make sense Absolutely. so instead of having like 11 guys on the line all pounding on one another now you had players out split out to the side and so you had less of a a concentrated mass on the line so initially the forward pass made the game significantly safer but camp resisted it so strongly that when they eventually legislated in the forward pass, he re- refused to sign off on the change. He, he left his, the spot for his signature blank. So that gives you a sense of where his priorities were, and they were in continuing to win. He wanted to win. He wanted Yale to be in a preeminent spot, and that was the most important thing to Walter Camp, it, I believe. I don't believe that it was the safety of the game. The name of the book is Opening Kickoff, The
0: Tumultuous Birth of a Football Nation. Our guest is Dave Rebson from the Big Ten Network, and we're we're focusing in on the University of Chicago and the history, that rich history of their football program. What type of shenanigans was Amos Alonzo Stagg getting away with back then?
1: Well, I mean, the biggest one was I think the great misconception of the University of Chicago is this notion that the University of Chicago was this august academic institution, which, of course, it is, right? I mean, it is – you know, they churn out Nobel Prize winners like, you know, Notre Dame churns out Heisman Trophy winners. So we, we all get that, that it's a wonderful school. But in its early stages, that wasn't the biggest concern when it came to football. And so they were bringing in kids who were just grossly unqualified for the university because the notion was, how do you build a reputation? If you're going to catch Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, it takes a long time to hire a faculty that can get you on a plane with them. But all you need is, you know, eight or ten football players, and you can get that going really quickly. And so that was their notion. So a lot of um, academic backdoor stuff, uh, he would tell professors that they had to give these players passing grades. They'd enroll the players with the same professors over and over. Their great star, who you were talking about before we went on the air, Walter Eckersall, who's probably, you know, Jay Berwanger obviously won the first Heisman Trophy, and, and we can get to him but Walter Eckersall was the biggest star in the University of Chicago's history. And Walter Eckersall played for four years for the University of Chicago. And he had, I want to, he, I know he had less than half of the credits needed for graduation. I think it was like 14 of the 38 credits. And he played for four years. There were professors who said he literally never showed up in class. His last game, he was honored at halftime. He was given a, a blanket with a C on it by the then president of the university, Uh praised for the contributions he had made to the school, and then two weeks later, he was dismissed from the university with no explanation, saying he can never enroll again. So he was he was a bad guy. Uh, he ended up writing for the Tribune and, and had a, a pretty successful journalism career. I think there's some question as to whether he actually penned the stuff or whether it was under just under his name. Uh, but yes, had a terrible reputation on campus, and they had a bunch of guys like this. So they had, I remember one year, there of the 28 guys on the team, only three were taking an actual academic load. I mean, it was crazy, right? So all of these issues that people say, why can't we just go back to the way it used to be in college football? Why do we have these students at schools who we don't think necessarily belong there? That's how it has always been. And that was the point of my book. There is nothing new under the sun, and the University of Chicago is maybe the ultimate example of that, at least in its early days. And that changed, and that was, of course, why the school ended up dropping the sport. There's a g- great story that
0: that Lester wrote about in, in, in Stagg's University, where there was one player who was supposed to go to summer school, and didn't, just didn't. Right. And Stagg's like, you should give him a B. He thought about going to summer school. <laughs> you should, you should give him a B. And th- that turns out to be Milt Romney, the man who met Romney is named after. Wow, I did not know that. It's it, I mean like it, the whole like this history of the University of Chicago wow. football program is absolutely fascinating. It, it all of the different tentacles that it has where it's the relationship with Northwestern, the relationship with Michigan, the relationship with Notre Dame, the relationship with the Bears and Soldier Field. You know, which was kind of led to the economic downturn of U of C football. Yep. It, it 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 strikes me as just so rich. And, and and I was saying to you before we started talking that I live over there. That that's my neighborhood. I work out at the Ratner Center. I pass the the first Heisman Trophy every morning. I sit there and I go, Am I walking down the same streets that Walter Eckersall was? Because you're right. Walter Eckersall was a bad man, and both yeah. on the field and off. And, and I think about that, like how this university, which now is held up in such high esteem, they they are everything, you know, that they, they will turn their nose up at the concept that they are the Harvard of the Midwest. They will tell you that Harvard is the University of Chicago <laughs> of the East. The right. T-shirts say University of Chicago, where fun goes to die <laughs> over there on campus. And to think that all of it, was because they started out as a football factory, just absolutely fascinates me.
1: Yeah, it is totally amazing. And and I agree with you, you know, kind of this notion. Uh, you were talking about Eckersall, Like, Walter Eckersall set the state record in the 100-yard dash, and it stood for 25 years. Like, this guy was unbelievable. Stagg, he was going to take a recruiting trip to Michigan, and Stagg got wind of it, went to the train platform, waited for him to get there, and when Eckersall walked up on the train platform, he grabbed him off and said, you're not going to Ann Arbor to visit. You're coming to the University of Chicago. And he came. He hadn't really even graduated Hyde Park High School at that point. There was such a fierce recruiting battle for him. They accepted him as something called a sub-freshman and allowed him (laughs) to kind of, well, you can take a few courses here and there in order to get yourself up to speed. But he was awesome. There was an all-star game. Hyde Park High School against uh, a, like Brooklyn Polytech or something. And they played at Marshall Field, which was the UFC's field. And it was supposed to be the best team in the Midwest and the best team in the East. And Stagg's Hyde Park High School or Ickersoll's uh, Hyde Park High School team beat them 105 to nothing. Wow. <laughs> I mean, he was awesome. Wow. Yeah, he was awesome.
0: How does it go wrong? What where, where do we start to see the pushback from the academics versus athletics?
1: Well, the university, the original university president died at a fairly young age, Harper. And then there was this succession. I mean, they were still pretty good. Like as late as 1924, they were really good. They won the big 10. That was our last great team. I think they tied red Grange in Illinois in 24. And that was a huge game, but there was starting to be this push and pull between academics and athletics and, There were members of the faculty who weren't happy with the emphasis. They changed the academic curriculum, so it became much more intensive. This was a period in the 20s where you had, I mean, college football really began to take hold. Now, I argue that 1890 to 1915 in my book were the most important time in the history of the game because it could have died at that point. Not just college football, but football period could have gone away were it not for what happened in that time period. But once you get past 1950, now you're on the path where it just it, – it is. And and now it becomes more and more powerful. We've gotten past the point where football may no longer be with us, and now it's how powerful does it become. And the 20s were the period where it really took off. And in response, a lot of these huge stadiums were built in the 1920s. If you look back at the, the college football edifices in the Big Ten and, and across the East Coast, too. So this is when – People started these building booms. The University of Chicago decided not to do it. They, they had added on to Stagg Field through the years. I think it's seated maybe in the forty to 50,000 range, but it wasn't really a, a nice stadium in the way that some of these other ones were. So that was part of it. They changed the curriculum. So all these other schools were introducing, like, backdoor majors, phys ed, or whatever it might be that could get kids through college. The University of Chicago refused to do that. So they kind of rebelled against this world. There was this push and pull within the university, and they forced out Stagg in 1933, and the guy was like 80 years old. <laughs> he <So> goes west. <laughs> yeah, to the University of Pacific, and comes back and beats them Yep, in in the late 1930s. But uh, So they did. They forced him out uh, once he had, had gotten well past a, a normal retirement age, and it just kind of starts to go south. You mentioned the competition with the Bears. That was a big part of it. Soldier Field had been built. These high school games were getting 100000 there. Notre Dame became a powerhouse, so you're competing with them. Northwestern in the 20s was really good. That was probably the one period in their history where maybe they weren't always totally playing by the rules. So Northwestern in the 20s was kind of a powerhouse. And so Chicago was in this weird spot where they just did not have that preeminent spot that they had had for so long. And so then when the team got bad and when there was some pushback academically, it all just kind of went downhill. And then they shuttered it. Yeah. Yeah. Literally closed it down in 1939. So what's really weird is, you know, Berwanger won the Heisman Trophy, and I think there's always this belief that he won it on a great team, and, oh, they were so good. No, they were a 500 team. And two of those wins were, I mean, it was like Oberlin, or, you know, they beat schools that you wouldn't normally play. I do think they beat U of I that year. I mean, he was a great player, but he was like a one-man team. And so then it really started to go downhill. And the last year in 1939, I know they lost to Michigan 85 to nothing. I think they lost to Ohio State like 61 to nothing. They didn't score against any of the Big Ten teams they played that year. There was all this pushback against it, and they just shut it down in 1939. I don't think it came back Division Three until the 70s. It's amazing because you would think that him winning the, the first Heisman Trophy
0: is the pinnacle of yeah. University of Chicago football when really it was kind of the the beginning of the end of the program. And and they do have they shut it down until the 70s. They come back and as all of that's going on they become this incredible academic institution, but what it shows us Dave, and we're talking with Dave Revson of the big Ten Network, is that academics and athletics have kind of always been at odds.
1: Yeah, and I think that is utterly fascinating, right? This notion that somehow it's gone off the rails. And my argument would be, if you think it's off the rails now, honestly, it was probably worse back then. I mean, because it was the Wild West. There were no rules. I talk about in 1893, Michigan, of the 11 starters on their team, seven of them weren't enrolled in the university. Okay? And you say that's crazy, Lawrence, but, but wh- who says they're supposed to be enrolled, right? There were no rules. So, so wh- I mean, just because they're representing the university doesn't mean they have to be students, right? Let's just go find guy. there was a whole uh, like market basically for students who would come in and, and just play for a day as ringers. You go for, you know you like go on the streetcar and say to a guy hey here's twenty five bucks you know you're a big guy you want to come play football for the day. Students would switch schools in the middle of the year. Fielding Yost is a great example mm-hmm. where he played for Penn and then he gets recruited to go play a game for Lafayette. Oh, no, I'm sorry, he played for West Virginia. He gets recruited to Lafayette, plays a game against Penn, the biggest win in Lafayette history. And then a week later, he's back in Morgantown playing for West Virginia again. Like, in the middle of the year. I mean, this is just the way that it worked. It was crazy.
0: I'm so happy that, that you came in and, and, and to talk to me about this. Have you ever gone to go see the Heisman Trophy, the Berwangers? Heisman Trophy? I've never Trophy? seen
1: Berwangers Heisman
0: Trophy. It's, it's literally in the middle of the student like fitness center. Wow. Like, just sitting there in a glass case, and you've got, like, the rings and everything else. The other thing that I always think is fascinating when I go over there at the pool at, at the University of Chicago, they have the 1905 Big Ten Championship banner. It's adorable. Like, like, and you would never guess that that's what happened. And people, I watch people because the, the elliptical machines are above. So they have this, like, rotunda. Yeah. And and the, the Heisman Trophy is the center of the rotunda. And you see people walk in and they go, wait, (laughs) double take. Why is this here? And and there. And it's because of this incredible and complicated history. I, I Harper Harper Court in Hyde Park is a big meeting area. And knowing the, seeing some of the letters that were written back and forth between Harper and Stagg throughout their 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 tenuous at sometimes history with one another is just
1: fascinating. Well, if you really want to geek out, I mean, look, I spent a lot of time in the archives there, um, studying the history to kind of figure out how to incorporate it into my book. Stag kept a ton of papers, and so, you know, Lester, basically, the, the reason he wrote the book is he was in charge, I believe, of sorting all those papers, and he became so fascinated by it that he decided to write this history, but it's amazing how much Chicago has, how much Yale has, I mean, that history's all there, and it's amazing, Lawrence, when you see this stuff, particularly in their pen, you know, their, their handwriting, just to think about, like, did they have any idea what this was going to become, When you, you know, I even just being at the final four this past week and seeing what college athletics has become, because it's all an offshoot of the early years of college football to understand the, the enormity of this enterprise that they were creating. I don't think it would have ever occurred to them. And yet in its time, like that 1905 big 10 championship, man, that was a huge deal. You know, they won two, nothing on a safety against Wisconsin or against (laughs) Michigan and, and the guy from Michigan who got tackled in the end zone ended up committing suicide. He was so devastated by it, right? Like, it was a big deal. Like, we can say, oh, it's just a bunch of guys taking a break between reciting Shakespeare to kick a football around for a couple hours. No. It was a huge deal, and the press covered it, and it captivated the city. I've heard—I haven't confirmed this, but I've heard
0: that, that Hail to the Victor is about Michigan beating University of Chicago. It would and make who would sense. Ever, who would ever yeah. think that? Who would ever think that 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 played a role in what is maybe the most popular fight song in college football? Are you going to do any more books?
1: I don't know. Um, Probably not until my kids are out of uh, the house because it was uh, was the kind of thing where it seemed like a good idea at the time. And I I (laughs) loved it, Lawrence. Like every moment that I was involved in it, I loved it. But I did it and I have a lot, you know, a significant amount of downtime in the summer because of our schedule. Like we go eight months craziness where I often work seven days a week. And then in the academic calendar, I have a little more time to myself, you know, really kind of starting in the next month or so. But I spent so much time. Like we had a family. I have 60 pages of footnotes in there. We were on a family vacation and my footnotes are due. So I'm sitting there while my kids are out by the pool and I'm, you know, footnoting telegrams from stag to camp in 1898 I mean I loved it but it's going to it it might be 5 6 years before I give, even give it a thought again.
0: I appreciate this book and I appreciate how much your family meant and how much you wrote about them Thank you. and your connection you your family connecting you to all of this stuff. I think that's very, very, very cool. The name of the book is The Opening Kickoff, The Tumultuous Birth of a Football Nation. Dave Revzin from Big Ten Network, thank you so much for coming to be on the show.
1: Lawrence, I'm thrilled that there's someone else who finds this as fascinating as I do because I think it's an unbelievable story, so I was really, really happy when you asked me to do it, and I could talk about it all day. Tell me that that didn't blow your mind.
0: Tell me. Tell me that that didn't blow your mind. All that stuff about Stagg and the way that the university was set up. And I know all my Hyde Park peeps, you'll recognize some of the names like Harper, for example, like Harper Court. Think about what they were doing. They were like the Miami of the early 1900s. They were doing everything they could to win. They were cheating. They were getting guys in. They They were bringing guys in off the street. All this crazy stuff that was going on please check out dave's book and if you have a chance you should check out stagg's university which was the whole reason that we we got this thing going in the first place because of me being enthralled with that book and apparently dave was as well and i i'm i'm dumbfounded by that it's so crazy like how many how how many of those stories we lose because we don't share them. And now we don't even think of the University of Chicago in a sports context. We think of it as one of the greatest universities on the planet. And when you have guys like Hubble coming through, that makes total sense that it's one of the greatest universities on the planet. Dave's book, by the way, if you want to get it, it's called the opening kickoff, the tumultuous birth of a football nation. It was released back in 2014. I have a copy of it. I got it on Amazon. So wherever you get books, get Dave's book. And please tell people about this podcast. Not, I mean, yes, about the House of L, but I mean specifically about this episode of the podcast. If you know some Chicagoans who love Chicago history, tell them about this. Because those are two incredible stories that were told. And, Look Look at what it, it brought. The fact that you, the basketball that Edwin Hubble played with went to space. It's not that often I get to geek out about two things that I really, really love, sports and history. But this allowed me to do that. And if there's other great storytelling to be done on the House of L podcast, trust me, we will find a way to do it. So big thanks to Dave Rebson. Big thanks to Mitch Rosen for letting me use this audio. I appreciate that and the score allowing me to use this audio. And I hope that you got something out of this. On Tuesday, we will be back. We'll have another episode of the House of L podcast. Our guest next week is going to be Kyle Higgins, who's a comic book writer. And you're going to love the conversation that we have. I can promise you that. Thanks for listening. We like to entertain you when we can. And Tuesday, we'll be back with an all-new episode of the House of L podcast. Tell people about this story!